I was racing in the UK, a boat uh, in the same race with us, a guy got a sheet around his hand and eventually around his forearm and lost his, his hand. I, I wasn't on board that boat, but I was giving advice by radio. We were close by. Um, there's been lots of wounds that I've sutured or stapled. Um, been on a Bay Regatta when somebody got anaphylaxis um, from a bee sting. I still get surprised though that people will spend you know, $100,000 on a new suit of sails on a boat that I raced on Fiji, but weren't prepared to spend $1,000 on buying a decent medical kit or $350 to do my course. So I think people are starting to get it, but I think there's still a long way to go. hallucinate you could see things it was quite an odd feeling and I'm sure most of the people that do the short-handed racing have done the same that you're always sleep deprived yeah I saw some some sheep on the foredeck uh, and I knew that we didn't have sheep on the foredeck but I still saw them and uh, we would be steering along driving the boat pretty high speed not off to sleep and suddenly wake up and think shit how long have I been asleep for Dave Austin is well known to many in the New Zealand and Australian sailing communities as Dr. Dave. He sailed more than 40,000 offshore miles, done a number of Sydney Hobart races, a couple of two-handed round North Island races, and raced up to the Pacific Islands multiple times. He's also one of the preeminent intensive care specialists in Australasia, and in 2019 was nominated for Australian of the Year, despite being a Kiwi. Welcome along to Broadreach Radio, the Yachting New Zealand podcast. Today we talk to Dr. Dave, who has assisted with a number of medical emergencies at sea and been Yachting New Zealand's medical officer since 2015. He talks about what yachties and boaties should do to make sure they are prepared if the worst happens. He also delves into some of his sailing experiences, like when he had to walk away from Digby Taylor's Whitbread campaign, his dramatic experiences during the 2002 Round North Island race when he was nearly washed onto the rocks at Cape Palliser, and the time he was so sleep-deprived he thought he saw a flock of sheep on the foredeck. Dr Dave has some simple advice for yachties and boaties in this podcast, which could prove life-saving, so stick around. Joining me now is Dr. Dave Austin, uh, who's on the line all the way from Australia. Thanks for um, joining us today. Uh, pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Well, safety at sea is always an important issue, whether you're, uh, I guess, an offshore adventurer, weekend warrior, or even just someone who enjoys time away cruising. And one thing that's pro- possibly overlooked or glossed over more than it should is being prepared for a, a medical emergency. So that's why we've asked Dr. Dave, um, as he's known by many around the sailing community, onto the show today. Just to start off, really, what is the main piece of advice that you'd give to yachties and boaties about health considerations? Um, 
I think there's a couple of bits of practical advice. The first is sailing is often quite arduous, so I think it's important to be physically fit. Um, and then I think you made the distinction between whether you're doing just some harbour racing or if you're going offshore, because clearly the priorities are different. If you're going offshore, my advice would be make sure you take your own medications. Um, I have been on boats where people have forgotten medications, for example, asthma inhalers uh, or even insulin, which can be a disaster. Um, and then the other bit of advice for offshore racing is to make sure that you practice um, some of the medical emergencies that may happen. What are you going to do? How are you going to get somebody down a steep companionway when it's rough? So how do you go about that? doing that? You know, how do you practice? Is it simulating the, the, on a boat? Yeah, so we, um, we do lots of those things in the course that I run, the Dr. Dave's Offshore course, um, and we talk about those things. And for it's really interesting because you often see people suddenly get the aha phenomenon and they think, ah, so that's what you would do. For example, um, talking about somebody having an injury, so the worst case scenario, somebody gets badly injured on the foredeck of the boat, query, um, they have a neck injury and it's rough and you have to get them downstairs. How are you going to get a patient downstairs on a boat when it's on an angle down a steep companionway with a ladder? Um, one of the things that we talk about is getting a headsail and putting the headsail across the companionway from the cockpit downstairs and then sliding the patient down. But practical things that people um, haven't thought about before um, and just going through scenarios with your crew before you set off. Do you think most people are prepared when they go? No. I think um, more are prepared these days than previously. I think the world has changed somewhat in that, you know, when I first started doing some offshore racing, nobody thought about medical emergencies. Nobody thought about what am I going to do if this happens. I think people are starting to think about those things now. Um, I think some people are very well prepared, but uh, many people go offshore and they're really not that prepared at all. Well, you've been a, a, the medical doctor for a number of events and you've also helped crews deal with situations. You know, what are some, I guess, some of the more extreme scenarios that you've dealt with? Um, we had a racing, or in fact, uh, Enterprise New Zealand. One of the guys developed appendicitis. Uh, and clearly you can't take an appendix out on a race boat at sea. And so he got some intravenous antibiotics and some intravenous fluid and then got him off the boat when we got to port. Um, when I was racing in the UK, a boat uh, in the same race with us, a guy got a sheet around his hand and eventually around his forearm and lost his, his hand. I wasn't on board that boat, but I was giving advice by radio. We were close by. Um, there's been lots of wounds that I've sutured or stapled. Um, been on a bay regatta when somebody got anaphylaxis um, from a bee sting. So you, you obviously know what you're doing. I guess what would you say to people who maybe don't know quite as much you know what what is the thing that they should do as soon as those things happen um i think the first thing and one of the things we talk about um in the dr dave's course is take your own pulse 
So the most important thing is to not panic because when you start panicking, as you're probably aware in any traumatic event, things really start unraveling. So you have to have somebody that's in charge that doesn't panic. Um, ideally, you have uh, practice, but if you haven't, you need somebody to look after the patient um, as their priority, somebody to sail a boat as a priority, somebody to get on the radio or the cell phone to organise help as another priority. And you just want it organised. And clearly it's going to depend on what the injury is or how badly the patient is injured as to how quickly you get them off the boat. Well, you've been tied up with um, Yachting New Zealand since 2015 as the, the medical doctor for the National Sports Body. How did that come about? Um, really, that was from Ray Hasler. Um, I used to race with Ray um, in the Bar of Islands and did a Hobart with Ray. Um, I'd previously been asked every offshore race I did, people would come and ask me about their medical kit, what they should take, what they shouldn't take. And uh, Ray was uh, the chair of Cork, which is the offshore racing circuit. Um, and the medical kit was for Yachting New Zealand needed reviewing. Uh, and Ray suggested to Yachting New Zealand and Angus Willison in particular that I would be a, a good resource. So I worked and rewrote the, the medical kit, completely revamped it. Because previously the medical kit had things had just been added to it and more and more stuff had been added until really it was a bit of a shambles. So it needed to go back to um, the first base and start again. So I, I completely reviewed it. I changed the categories. I made it into a modular kit. So there was a day kit, a coastal kit and an offshore kit and each one you would add or similarly you would take one off if you're doing an ocean race and you've got to your port of destination, you can take off the, the major kits and keep a day kit on board for um, harbour racing. How so that's how it started. And how do people find where these kits are, how, you know, to check what they've got and what they need? So it's all on the Yachting New Zealand website. Um, there's the, the medical kit, the requirements. I've also written some background information, um, again, that's in PDF on that site. So you can go to the site, download the, the um, kit, and you can also download some instructions um, about what's in the kit, when to use it, when not to use it. So just for anyone who's not aware, that's yachtingnz.org.nz. Um, and then just uh, have a search for the, the medical kit on there. Um, you, you mentioned the Dr. Dave's Offshore Medic course, um, which has proved pretty popular, obviously, um, it's not uh, being delivered in the last little while because you're stuck in Australia. But what, what else do people do on the course? How long is it? You know, what are the key components? Um, so it's a day. Um, that came around really because I got asked to talk before every ocean race that I did on medical emergencies, and that was pretty well received. Um, and then the, I think it was the 2016 Sydney Hobart race, there were three very bad injuries. There was somebody that um, fractured a femur and had an open wound with the bone sticking through the side of their leg. There was another person with very badly, multiple um, badly fractured ribs and a pneumothorax and somebody else with a head injury. And every boat 
had two medics on board who'd been through Yachting Australia mandated courses, but not one person on any of those boats felt confident to give an injection. Um, by that time, I was working also for Yachting Australia, um, and, and I thought this was a major problem, that people could get through a course that was mandated by the governing bodies, but they weren't able to practically manage a situation at sea. So I decided to develop and write a course, um, which became the Dr. Dave course, um, and delivered it. And we did the first one in 2016 in, um, in Auckland. Uh, we had seven people at the first one. Um, it's a day course. There's a test that people do before they do the course. They do the course. The course is a 50-50 mix, really, of lectures and practical demonstrations. Um, we teach people, we discuss burns, trauma, seasickness, CPR, stapling, uh, how to give injections. It's very practical. Um, all of the profits that I generate from that course, um, I donate to charity. Um, I do the course each year. It's all volunteers. Um, we don't take any profit from it. Um, Beck Costello, who many of you will know from the yachting world, is an integral part of that course. And Beck is a, a nurse who works in the emergency department in Auckland. She helps me run the course. Uh, Angus is, Willison has become involved in the course and Sally Garrett. So the four of us run the course. Um, it generally runs once, uh, once a year, uh, about February. The, the date is not set in stone. Um, and it takes a day. It's a whole day, and it's a long day, um, but most people who do it seem to enjoy it. Yeah, as I say, well, you, with you in Australia, we're not sure when the next one might be delivered. Hopefully when this, this bubble opens up or, or the world returns to a bit of normalcy, that'll be, we'll be able to get one sorted. But are there other ways that people can improve their skills? Um, there are some other courses. Um, the Coast Guard runs some courses. Um, I'm, I, I've had a look at uh, the course that Coast Guard runs, um, certainly different to mine. Um, there are general first aid courses that you can do with um, St John's, but there aren't many courses that are, that are um, developed like mine that really are for working in an extreme environment. You know, it's, it's quite different to think about how you would manage a patient in a hospital or an emergency department or on the side of the road in good weather to what it's like when you have an injury halfway to Fiji and it's rough and really rough and you can't get good communications. Um, you can't easily get the person off the boat. You have to manage on your own. And those are the things that I try and teach people. Uh, you know, I realise that we're not going to teach, we're not going to develop doctors and nurses from the course, but I can give some practical advice as to how you would manage a difficult situation in those um, when it's rough or when when you're not completely trained as a doctor or a nurse. Well, no wonder you say that um, panicking doesn't help if you're halfway to Fiji. Um, yeah. So, you know, you do a course, whatever course that may be, is there a sort of a period when you think, you know, you should uh, have a refresher or upskill? 
Yeah, so we've set um, our refresher date at five years. Um, other courses, it's much sooner than that. Um, the, the reality is it's difficult to know how frequently you should do a course. I think it depends on how often you're using your skills. I would certainly, I give out notes for the course and I'd certainly suggest that if you've done the course, you should read the notes at least once a year and also before any ocean race or regatta, I'd suggest that you get your crew together and practice some of the things such as stapling, putting on an emergency bandage, applying a tourniquet, that sort of thing. Mm. I think I've, I've seen the quote from you is that people practice their jibes and, and tacks and starts all the time, but they don't practice their, um, you know, what happens in an emergency. So it's... Um, it's probably food for thought for a lot of people out there. But, um, I mean, at this point, it's probably just worth exploring why you're seen as such an expert in this field, you know, both professionally and in sailing, because you're also highly experienced on the water. Um, but there's just one little thing I want to ask you before we get into that. And in, in 2019, you were nominated for Australian of the Year. But aren't you a Kiwi? <laughs> yeah, I am. Um I'm a dual citizen, so we call ourselves ANZAC citizens. Um, we're citizens of both Australia and New Zealand now. Um, I was pretty reluctant to, to become an Australian citizen because I said to Claire, my wife, that uh, I still want to support the All Blacks when they're playing. Um, I could never support the Wallabies. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was nominated. Um, I was... Um, surprising uh, that I was nominated. I uh, wasn't successful, but um, it was a huge honour. Why do you think you were nominated? Um, I think a number of reasons. I, I live in central Queensland, which is uh, a huge disparate area of over a million square kilometres. Um, it's a regional area. And I was the first intensive care specialist ever um, in this area. When I arrived, I was on my own and I built up um, a, a great ICU. Um, I'm very proud of the ICU here. We're the only intensive care unit that's uh, had advanced training in intensive care. Um, I was the first ever chair of the intensive care exam outside of a main centre. And we had the highest pass rate for the ICU exam. And I do a lot of charity work. And I think the combination of those meant that somebody decided to nominate me uh, for the Australian of the Year. As well as your greater intellect being a Kiwi as well, you um, stood out more. <laughs> sure. Uh, I, um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but you lost out that year to cave divers um, Craig Challen and Richard Harris, who participated in that famous cave rescue um, with the football team in Thailand. And I'm guessing as a diver and a doctor that you can relate to the work that they probably did in, in really difficult circumstances. Yeah, I can. Richard Harris is a good friend of mine. Um, we, we trained together in Adelaide and he's a fantastic guy. And you see him on the television and he is a, comes across a really nice bloke. And that's exactly what he is. He's just a normal guy. And Richard was uniquely placed as an anaesthetist and a cave diver to, to deal with those kids. And I've talked to him quite a lot. In fact, I talked to him uh, last weekend. We, were, we caught up. And 
he had an incredibly difficult decision to make. And the situation they were in is that the water was rising. And if they did nothing, those kids were going to die a horrible death. Um, and he decided that he would sedate them and put them on um, a breathing apparatus, each one individually, and then swim them out. And he said to me that he really didn't know if it would work or not. And he knew that if he did nothing, they would die. Um, this was a chance. However, if it went wrong, there would be many you know, so-called experts in the world that would tell him he made the wrong decision. And he did everything absolutely expertly and um, uh, nothing but admiration for, uh, for what uh, Harry did. Amazing. Yeah, well, I guess we're going to be looking forward to the uh, the movie adaption of that. Uh, yeah. At some stage, maybe Richard could even play himself. Um, <laughs> you, you just briefly talked about um, what you do over there, but you know, maybe if you can just give us the highlights package of of what you've done and and what you do now and how you sort of got to this point. Um, so I did my training I became a doctor and then I went sailing straight away um, and then I came back and did my junior doctor years and then started training as a specialist uh, in anesthesia which was the way to get into intensive care so I did an anesthetic fellowship in those days to become a specialist in anesthesia and then I did an intensive care fellowship um, and I I worked in Northland. I was the director of the intensive care unit um, in Whangarei for uh, nine and a half years. Um, and we built a new unit and I developed that unit from uh, an HDU to very much a busy um, ICU. Um, and I just wanted some time off. I took a, a year's leave without pay and we came to Australia uh, for one year and we've been here ever since. <laughs> Um, funny how life takes you down different paths, but um, we've really enjoyed our time here. We've been 15 years here, and um, I developed a, an ICU here that's big and busy. Um, it's now fully staffed, fully equipped. Um, the difference between the Australian and New Zealand health systems is extreme. Um, when I go and see the managers here because I need new equipment, then there's generally money to buy things. Um, and the unit here is fantastic. You know, we, we're very isolated. Um, so despite being in a city of uh, 85,000, I think, and a, a regional population of 280,000, we're 800 k's uh, from Townsville to the north and 800 k's from Brisbane to the south. So you have to deal with whatever comes in the door. And that may be a baby, uh, it may be a big car accident, it may be morbidly obese people, pneumonia, trauma, snake bites, you, you name it, we, we get it here. I was reading through your CV the other day, and one thing that really stood out was the variety of experience that you've got in outdoor activities. And I guess particularly sailing, which we'll talk a bit more about, but also mountaineering, skiing, and diving. Are you kind of like everyone's best friend, always getting along, <laughs> you know, getting invited along to these exciting trips? Um, yeah, well, I have done lots of really exciting things. And it's funny, one thing sort of leads to another. Um, 
I I uh, worked on the ski field for uh, four winters at Tura as a doctor for ski patrol. And um, somebody contacted me, a guy called John Gully, uh, in 1991. And he was taking kids up to Everest Base Camp. And he invited me along as a doctor. So I got involved in youth to Everest. And I've been on three trips up to uh, Everest Base Camp. Um, I then got invited to be the doctor for the Xerox Challenge, which was the multi-sport race from North Cape to Bluff. Um, and as I say, one thing leads to another. Somebody hears about you because you've done something and they talk to somebody else and then you get another invite. Uh, sadly, there's not been enough time to do everything that I wanted, but um, hopefully two years' time when my son graduates from university, we will um, return home to the Bay of Islands and I'll have a bit more time to get involved in uh, more offshore medical trips. What's the most extreme environment you've worked in? Um, probably the most extreme was when we were trying to rescue the soldiers who were trapped uh, in the storm on Mount Ruapehu. And that was in the early 1990, I think. Um, and you may or may not remember the story, but some sailors were on part of their outdoor um, training. They were ill-equipped, and they were going up to the dome shelter at the top of Mount Ruapehu, and they got caught out in a really bad storm, and they made uh, a terrible decision. Um, the leader of that group decided that there was a that they would keep going when they should have turned around. And um, there was a gap in the weather, so they decided to make a break to try and get to the dome shelter, and then the weather closed in again. Um, and they were then stuck on the ridge, exposed. One man ran um, down to, to get help, um, and uh, unfortunately I think there were eight or nine of these young soldiers died. Um, we... We were their last hope, um, and we tried to rescue them. You couldn't get a helicopter. The weather was too bad. So we were in a snowcat um, going from um, the ski field up towards the crater lake. Um, the weather was so bad, the visibility was about two or three metres, um, and we would take it in turns to have somebody roped in front, walking in front of the snowcat, tied to the cat, so that we didn't go off a cliff because you literally had no idea where you were. Um, that was probably the most extreme environment. Um, another one off, uh, off Mount Ruapehu that, that well, in fact, two others that really stick in my mind is when one of our friends who was working on a tower, um, the guys used to stand up on the towers and knock the ice off them. Um, and uh, he fell about 50 feet onto blocks of ice and had uh, a major chest injury. Um, and so during the middle of a storm, I put a chest drain in him on the ski field because he had a big pneumothorax and we had to fly him out. And the weather, the wind was blowing so hard that the chairlifts were doing 360 degree turns and they were unwinding the cable off the, uh, off the chairlift. Wow, this is incredible. Mm. 
What's the main attraction then for you to work in these extreme environments? Um, it's an enormous challenge, um, and I've always liked really difficult things, things that are either physically difficult, like I love it when it's really rough sailing, um, but I really like the challenge. I perform pretty well when things are difficult um, at sea or it's a it's a tough environment, you know, the, the standard cardiac arrest and bad car accident with a child involved and people are pretty stressed about how to manage them in the emergency department. I really like difficult challenges. I always have. Well, let's, let's dive a little bit more into your sailing experiences because, you know, you've sort of hinted at it a little bit in there and, and it's fair to say you've done a bit. Um, How did you get into the sport? Um, just the usual Kiwi way. I started sailing in uh, P classes. Um, I then sailed on a little two-man boat called a Phase 2 in Littleton and then trailer boats and really the first um, really good keelboat that I raced on was a far one-tonner called Granny Apple in Littleton in the 1980s. Okay. You've done more than 40,000 offshore miles, I think. Um, yeah. yeah. Where, where have you done most of that? Um, a lot around New Zealand. We sailed to the UK. I've done uh, 17 uh, island races, uh, Auckland, Fiji or Newmere or Brisbane, Newmere. Um, I raced a lot around uh, Europe. Done a couple of, uh, I've done three Sydney Hobarts, two two-man North Island races. What's the, you know, you talked about your love at rough. What's the main attraction, I guess, of, of going to sea? Is it a, is it a bit like, you know, as you're in your work, you love a challenge? Yeah, I love a challenge and I love the camaraderie that you get with a really good group of guys that you sail with. And some of my best mates in the, in the world uh, are my yachting mates. You know, Craig Partridge, who's known as Petal, is my best friend who I've done an awful lot of sailing with. Um, Mark Wallace, known as Wally, or Fizzle Houghton, um, Bassie, people will know. Um, some of these guys just are fun to be with. Uh, I love sailing because generally it's so different to my day-to-day -day work. My day-to-day -day work is pretty involved and I get really involved in what I do. Um, it's all consuming sometimes. I'm often called in the middle of the night to go into some new disaster and I can go sailing. I can turn my phone off. I won't get any emails. I don't get any calls about come and do this and I can just go and relax with my mates. It certainly would be an attraction in your industry. Um, you, one thing that sticks out is then what I think in 1985 you became the doctor as part of the NZI Enterprise um, team for the Whitbread Round the World race. Um, how did that come about? Um, I, that was an interesting time and a big disappointment. Um, I'd seen the, you know, I was a keen yachtsman obviously as a young young kid and seen Peter Blake and Ceramco um, and uh, I done a little bit of yachting at that time probably not enough and um, I applied for the crew of Enterprise and I got on I ended up not doing the race there was uh, 10 of us that left the boat before the race started and I was number 10 um, 
it was an extremely interesting time in my life. Um, Digby Taylor was skipper of the boat and Digby taught me a lot of things and mostly how not to do things. Um, he had a, certainly a different leadership style to any other I've seen. Um, and uh, there was a lot of frustration on that boat. Uh, Digby really ruled the boat and made the decisions about how things would be done. For example, um, every maxi in the world, and I think there were 64 maxis at that point, had uh, a typical uh, a type of terminal for, on their mast called Navco. And Murray Ross and Steve Wilson argued with uh, Digby for three days about the types of terminal to put on the mast, and, and Digby finally won. Um, and the boat damaged the rig in the first leg and lost the rig in the third leg. Um, I almost didn't go uh, leave the country on, on the boat because I had an argument with Digby about the medical kit. Um, I had uh, done a lot of research on what other medical kits had been on boats before. I got the medical kits. I contacted the doctors of previous Whitbread boats and and uh, also the one from Ceramco, and I took less than they did, but Digby wanted me to take even less. And we had a bit of a Mexican standoff as to what I could and couldn't take. It was a, it was a very difficult time. Um, to be fair to Digby, had some very strong personalities on the boat. Um, Murray Ross was on board. Russ Field was on board. Uh, um, there was a, there was, yeah, it was a difficult time. Um, the crew didn't really gel, um, and when things got bad, we we hit a, a chartered reef off uh, uh, Nicaragua, and we were stuck on this reef for about twelve hours, and we punched through into the middle of a lagoon um, and bent the keel. Um, and Digby thought we'd be fine to carry on sailing across to the UK. And the crew decided that, uh, and Murray in particular, that we needed to go and check the boat and check the keel uh, in Fort Lauderdale. And that was a major, major fight about that. It was a, it was a difficult time, and I decided when we got to Fort Lauderdale with three or four other guys that we'd had enough at that point. Um, and so we left the boat, and... That was a disappointment because I had dreamed of doing the race um, and ended up not doing the race. So you've said it's sort of one of your regrets. Is it in terms of the circumstances or that you still haven't been able to do the race? Yeah, I haven't been able to do the race and clearly I'm, I'm too old now. I would uh, not make a crew of, a, of one of the uh, around-the-world boats now. I'm too old to do it. And uh, that's life. I learned a lot of things from that. Um, still have some of the friends from the boat. One of my mates, Phil Harris, lives in Kirikiri just down the road, uh, who was on board with me during that race. To the fact that um, the boat was dismasted southeast of the Chatham Islands uh, on that leg three, as you say, and they had to withdraw. Did you feel in some ways vindicated that you know you made the right decision? Yeah, I, I guess in a bizarre way, I, I did. And everybody, all of us on the crew, knew that 
the boat would not get around the world. It was, there were too many things that were just not well organized. And um, we knew there would be some sort of disaster. And so it was absolutely no surprise um, when that happened. I mean, I felt really sorry for the guys that had stayed who'd put their heart and soul into doing the race. Um, but I think it was predictable. And as you know, a number of the guys said, um, one of the one of the things that Digby taught them was how not to run a campaign. What about events? Because you you know you've had a lot of experience uh, with helping events get organised, particularly on the medical side. Obviously, have you seen positive changes? I guess in race organisers generally, when it comes to medical preparedness. Um, yeah, I think people are starting to get um, the idea now that, that medical issues are, should be a priority, though not everyone gets it. Um, interestingly, living in Australia compared to New Zealand, where litigation is much more common, and people are very much risk-averse here than they are in New Zealand. Um, and so medical issues are, are, are very much a priority over here in this country and, and indemnity. Um, I, I still get surprised, though, that people will spend you know, $100,000 on a new suit of sails on a boat that I raced on to Fiji, but weren't prepared to spend $1,000 on buying a decent medical kit or $350 to do my course. So I think... People are starting to get it, but I think there's still a long way to go. Are there there times when you sort of shake your head and and feel like accidents or incidents are sort of waiting to happen? Uh, Yeah. When I look around at other boats that I sail on, um, I think most days I go sailing, I, I see things around that I think that's a disaster waiting to happen. One of my best friends who's an intensivist in Brisbane, he and I often laugh that we're going to write a book which is entitled And What the F Did You Think Was Going to Happen? <laughs> you know, when you see some of the behaviours of some people, it's no surprise. You you would be amazed at some of the things that people do that we see here. And, and do, you, turn up in this book. do you generally talk to them about it and say, hey, what are you doing? Or you just sometimes don't have the energy? Um, yeah, we always try. Um, generally, when they come to us in intensive care, they're very unwell um, and they're asleep on a ventilator, um, so on a life support machine. So that's not the time to talk to them. Um, sometimes, you know, when they're off the ventilator, you can have a chat, but sometimes uh, people are just stupid. You know, for example... I saw a guy here a couple of years ago who decided to go hang gliding. And there was two major problems. Uh, one, there were no hills where he lived. And two, there was no wind. So he had a great idea and he got a tow rope and put it onto the back of the car. And he tied a slip knot onto the bar across the front of the hang glider. And he, and, uh, he got his mate to drive the car. And he was going to run along and get towed by his mate and fly above the air. And when he, when he was at the extent of his tow rope, he would pull a slip knot. And he said to me, it would have been fine except my mate stalled the car. And so this guy was flying along at about 
60 feet above the ground. His mate stalled the car. It stopped suddenly. The car stopped. The hang glider kept going until it got to the extent of the rope, and then it crashed to the ground. And he was badly injured, this guy. And you just shake your head and think, yeah, and what did you think was going to happen, mate? It just sounds like a cartoon, doesn't it? It's, you know, it's it does. It's brilliant. Oh. Mm-hmm. Among your um, your many roles and responsibilities, you're what you're the medical director for SANS, uh, which is the shorthanded association in New Zealand. I think that's almost a twenty year association um, with that organisation. Um, what's the and you've you've done shorthanded sailing? You've done the round North Island race a couple of times. What is the attraction of, for you of shorthanded sailing? Is it again? Is it just the challenge? I. I it's the best sailing. I love short-handed sailing. It is by far the best sailing that I've ever done. I got involved in um, SANS as uh, volunteered um, uh, to be their medical director because I'd done the race a couple of times and they clearly needed just a bit of help and direction about medical issues because short-handed sailing is arduous and they needed some guidance on who to say could do it and who couldn't do it. So I developed some rules around uh, getting a medical sign-off from your GP and things, Uh, and also the medical kit. But two-handed sailing is the best sailing that I've ever done. It's really hard, long races. And to do it with my best mate, Craig Partridge, um, really has been the highlight of my sailing career. Craig and I are best friends, and we are entirely different personalities. We are the complete polar opposites. But we get on extremely well. We've raced two two-man races together. We've done Fiji races, Numea races. But we've never argued. And two-handed sailing, to me, is the epitome of um, you need to be well-organised, you need to be physically fit, you need to be robust because it's physically hard, you need to be tactically aware as to when to change sails, when to change direction, You need to think about when to rest, when to push hard, when to slow down. Um, You need to maintain the boat, cook, uh, navigate. Uh, It's all the things that you do on a big boat with a big crew. um, There's just two of you to do. It's difficult, but it's incredibly rewarding. And the two-man round North Island race, I would encourage everyone to have a go at doing it because it's run really well by Sands. They're great guys, and some of the best people that you'll meet uh, do that race. And you meet them again and again at different regattas, and they always seem to congregate together and talk about the two-man races that they've done together. Hmm. Well, the first one you did, was it 2002? Um, you won Division Three on both line and handicap. But it's kind of one of those um, statements that doesn't really – tell the whole story does it because i read your blog the other day um and it sounded quite dramatic what happened well it was a really good race we were the smallest boat in the fleet um blackout was a a ross 30 footer um she weighed 1900 kilos all up she's very lightly built and craig and i pushed her really really hard um we got line and handicap for our division i think we got second overall in the race second or third um we 
could have, should have won maybe, but uh, we made a bad decision on leg one going inside the Cavallis. Um, and uh, when we were fourth boat on the water, and we got becalmed and cooked straight for six hours. So we had two areas where we um, where we didn't do as well on two legs as we should have. But the race was second leg um, from the long leg, Monganui down to Wellington, it was pretty pretty windy, pretty rough. Um, the third leg up the Wairapa coast was extremely rough. Uh, it was tight reaching and 40 knots, 35, 40 knots. Um, it was it was a brilliant, brilliant race to do. Tell us about your tiller extension. The tiller extension. So we broke that tiller extension soon after we started on the second leg. Um, I was steering. Um, we had a reasonable start. We didn't start very well in the first leg. We didn't start. We started okay in the second leg. Craig and I took it in turns as to who would start each leg. And I was driving and the tiller extension snapped and the boat rounded up and we had the kite in the water and was a shambles and boats going around us while we're trying to get the boat tidied up. And we then, um, I was trying to steer and Craig lashed the tiller extension back on. And so we did this whole of the second leg with the tiller extension lashed, which worked really well until the middle of the night with a kite up in about you know, 28 knots or something down the west coast when the tiller extension came undone again. And uh, I was trying to hold the uh, hold the tiller and steer while Greg was trying to relash it. It was uh, it was funny. We had, a, we had a lot of laughs in that race. Were you laughing then soon after the start of, you know, leaving Wellington? Tell us what happened there. No, <laughs> that was one of the more dramatic uh, events and close to the best worst wipeout ever. Um, we had two reefs in the main and a number four. We really needed three reefs, but the way the boat was set up to get three reefs was a real rigmarole, and the easiest thing to do was to drop the main to get a third reef and then rehoist. It was big breeze when we when we left the harbour, um, and we got outside the the heads of the harbour, and we were heading down the coast towards Palliser and the breeze built and built until finally we had, I think it was about 64, 65 knots of breeze, and we were just hanging on. And I was trying to get the, the main down when, of course, things always happen at the worst time, and um, it was a two-purchase main, and the uh, Halliard had uh, overridden the sheave, and I was trying to pull the, the main down when I looked behind Craig and this wall of white water just came towards us. And I don't know what the wind strength was. It may have been 80 knots, it may have been more, and it just knocked us on our side. And we could not get the boat up. Blackout had very swept spreaders uh, to about 32 degrees, and every time we got close to getting up, we'd just get knocked flat. So the boat was on its side with the mast either in the water or just out of the water for about three hours and we just kept getting blown towards the rocks at Palliser until finally um, we, we got pretty close in shore actually 
and uh, in desperation I, I walked along the rig um, and took a rope and put it onto the head and just ground the mane down until we could finally get the mane down um, and, uh, and then tack out and get out of that bay. But uh, we think we were maybe 250, 300 metres off the, off the rocks. It was a pretty desperate situation. We would not have wanted to be any closer. Um, when we finally got into Napier um, and I had turned my phone on again and had cell phone reception, I had 36 missed calls on my phone. The Coast Guard had been alerted, apparently. The, the, rad, the whole boat was a shambles. It was wet. There was water down below because we'd been on our side for so long. The radio was wet and it wouldn't work. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty dramatic. Sounds like fun. No wonder you love this stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was good. Another thing that stood out to me from your blog was the fact that you barely slept during a race. And I think on one leg, you got about five hours and five days. I mean, how on earth do you manage to do that? Um, I've never been a big sleeper. Um, and I always say that you can sleep when you're dead. And I couldn't have done all the things that I've done or do the things that I do each day if I slept a lot. And I'm relatively lucky that I survive on about four or five hours sleep a night now because I get up and I've got lots of stuff that I do. I'm involved in lots of projects, both at work and for the college and other things. Um, And um, I'm really lucky that I can have a very short sleep. I can sleep for an hour and I'm fine. For the day, but when we got into Wellington um, and uh, we we got off the boat and went to a motel and I slept for probably close to 24 hours, I'd imagine. But we were, yeah, it was hard. It was a hard race. Were there any moments when you nearly caught yourself falling asleep? Yeah, we did. We had micro sleeps, both Craig and I. Um, you know, we'd hallucinate um, when you're uh, really tired. You could see things. It was quite an odd feeling, and I'm sure most of the people that do the short-handed racing have done the same, that you're always sleep-deprived. But, um, yeah, I saw some, some sheep on the foredeck, uh, and I knew that we didn't have sheep on the foredeck, but I still saw them. And uh, we would be steering along, driving the boat pretty high speed, you know, 15, 16 knots, and not off to sleep, and suddenly wake up and think, Shit, how long have I been asleep for? I'm guessing the doctor side of your personality would probably say to the sailor side, that's not ideal. No, probably not ideal, but uh, certainly the, the doctor side goes uh, goes on holiday when I go racing, unless I'm called to see someone. <laughs> so, you know, how often do you get uh, a call, you know, at, some other fellow competitor, there's a, a disaster happening. You know, what What do you do? How often does that happen? Oh, pretty common. Um, um, pretty common. Often after um, an ocean race, there'll be a queue of people that'll want to see me. So you get up to Fiji and there's a group of people that have got uh, minor injuries to, you know, some of them sort of moderate injuries that need dealing with they need wounds cleaning or suturing or plastering and um it's pretty common that i'll get called to to go and see somebody or to fix something 
do you get calls when you're racing to to sort of offer advice as as you're racing along? Yeah, I certainly have done. Uh, one I talked about before in the UK when a guy caught his forearm, uh, caught a sheet runner's forearm, um, in the two man race. That's 2002 two man race. We were doing the fourth leg coming into Auckland, and there was a a boat with a guy having a heart attack nearby that um, I got called about and was giving some advice. Um, but yeah, not uncommonly. Can you feel quite helpless when you're sort of guiding people through that experience, or, you know, rather than treating a patient in, in person, which is obviously more preferable? Yeah, it's um, it's difficult, obviously, because you you can't you can't see what's going on. Um, you're not there, you haven't got the patient in front of you and you're trying to do it by remote, it's difficult. Um, I, I'm often asked by friends if I will be uh, on phone advice for races and Ray Hasler called me when he was bringing uh, his boat back from uh, from the Numea race and one of the guys was confused on board. And, um, and so... Ray had rung me on the sat phone and we talked about, um, you know, possible causes and and uh, he'd been a bit sick and he hadn't slept and so I gave some advice and they were just cruising back so there was no, wasn't racing. So um, I knew what was in his medical kit because I'd made it up um, and so I suggested some drugs for him and some fluid and, and then to give me a call in six hours and Ray called me a few hours later and uh, they'd gone down below to check him and couldn't wake him up. And uh, it was now clearly something very significant. And so I said to Ray, um, look, you've got to get him off the boat. And they were about 150 miles north of Cape Rianga at the time. Um, and the helicopter went out and uh, plucked him off the boat, which was a pretty good effort, actually, at that distance. Um, and sadly, he had a brain tumour, it turns out had a brain tumour that hadn't been diagnosed and had a bleed into his tumour. Um, so, yeah, you do, you know, I do get called about uh, giving advice to patients and it is difficult trying to treat somebody by remote, but certainly I'm happy to help in any sort of advice that I can give um, sometimes helps people. Mm. Now, you went back for a second bite at the North Island race in 2010, um, equally successful. Um, any dramatic events in that one? Yeah, that was a that was a 2011 race. Um, that was a, a really hard race. So the fleet started, I think there were 38 boats and 18 boats finished. Um, it was incredibly rough. The West Coast leg was really, really rough. Um, uh, I think there were three boats pulled out with keels that were loose. Uh, there was a lot of carnage, a, a number of boats dismasted. Um, it was difficult for me. Um, part way down the West Coast leg, I got a uh, end of a skid, got a call about uh, my sister-in-law who was missing in the earthquake in Christchurch and turned out she had, she'd been caught in the CTV building and she died. So we, when we got into, into Wellington, I certainly um, talked to my brother a lot about what to do and stopping the race, going to see him and, 
we were at sea. It was rough. We had no idea about the earthquake. Um, that was a that was a pretty difficult race. Craig and I did it on another Ross boat. Um, we did it on M1, and uh, Craig and I bought M1 and put a big rig on it, which came out of Hydroflow and increased the sail area by 30%. Um, and it was huge. All the gear on that boat was huge and heavy. The autopilot couldn't manage to steer the boat, and so one guy had to drive while the other did a sail change, which took about an hour by the time you've got a headsail from down below, dragged it up, hoisted it, dropped the other one, bagged it, and uh, it was hard. That boat was a hard boat to sail two-handed. And uh, we were both pretty fit beforehand, and I think I lost about eight kilos during that race because you just couldn't eat enough during that race to keep going. Any sheep on the foredeck? <laughs> I don't think I don't think we saw any sheep on that uh, on that race. Though I did have a great wipeout, which I'll talk ab- about at the end in that race. I look forward to it. Um, you've mentioned that you'd quite like to return to New Zealand in a couple of years. Uh, you know, what sort of else is on the bucket list in terms of your your sailing ambitions? So uh, obviously, because of COVID, things uh, have been off. I was keen to do an ocean race this year. Um, but that doesn't look like they'll be going ahead. Um, this year I'm doing the Brisbane Gladstone race, which is uh, 300 miler, and doing the Brisbane Keppel race, which is 350 miles. Um, I'll do the Hobart again this year. I'll do Ely Beach Regatta, um, maybe Hamilton Island Regatta again. Um, that's this year. And more longer term? Um, don't know. I'm, I'm very keen to do another two-man North Island race again, um, ideally with uh, Craig Partridge, pedal, but uh, he tells me he's retired. So if I can't talk him into doing another one, then one of my other mates, probably uh, Fizzle, Fizzle Houghton, he'd be keen, uh, as long as we can find a boat to do it in. But I'm very keen to do at least one more two-man North Island race. I'd like to do a third. So if Craig is Petal and you've also got Fizzle, what are you? Or who are you? Well, sadly, mine is simple. Mine's Doc. So I think they need everybody. To... Sorry. I think they need to find a more imaginative um, nickname <laughs> for you. I'm sure. Yeah. Um. If just before we we wrap up, if there's one thing that you'd really like to see change uh, in sailing from a medical point of view, what would that be? Um. I would like to think that we could convince people to practice prior to departing. So just spend an afternoon with the crew saying, okay, right, so you're injured, you're on the foredeck of the boat, how are we going to get you down below? And actually practice doing that. Um, Think about somebody's badly injured, right, who's going to steer the boat? Who's going to look after the patient? Who's going to get them below? who's going to get on the radio, and just work through the practicalities of that. The other thing to practice is uh, giving an injection. Um, Lots of people have morphine in their medical kits or midazolam or antibiotics, but they haven't actually given an injection. And clearly that's not the thing to do when you're offshore and it's really rough. 
So coming to the Dr. Dave course is a, is a good thing to do. Um, hopefully that'll be early next year uh, or doing another course. I don't know if the Coast Guard course teaches you how to give injections, but um, certainly that's something to practice. You can practice on an orange or a chicken. Um, we use chickens on the course to inject into. We get people to draw up morphine and dilute it and inject it. We get them to draw up antibiotics and inject them to the chicken. Um, Beck Costello, um, Beck um, teaches uh, on the course with me and she teaches how to give injections. She's very good at that, much better. Nurses are always better than doctors at following the instructions of uh, how to give injections. So, yeah, certainly the thing I'd like to see would be um, people giving medical issues some thought prior to departure. Yeah, it was certainly good advice, that's for sure. Um, well, look, thank you so much for coming on, but um, I just you, you hinted at uh, a worst wipeout ever. You've, you've had a pretty decent one um, in the two-handed North, uh, around North Island race. What, um, what's your, uh, your next worst wipeout? Second worst wipeout. Um, that would again be in the two-man North Island race, the 2011 race with Craig. Uh, we were racing on M1 and we'd got round uh, Mahia and we're going up the east coast and it was rough. It was blowing 45 knots with big waves. The, the waves were about eight or nine metres and we were surfing down these waves. Um, we'd been racing from early morning. It was now late in the afternoon and uh, it had been pretty, pretty torrid. I said to Craig, I'll go and put some food on while you drive. Um, and we were flying. The boat was just flying. Um, so I was down below. I had the kettle on and uh, I was getting some food ready. And Craig shouted out, just hang on. And I felt the boat take off over one wave. It went over a second and it buried into the third. And Craig thought the boat was going to pitch pole. So he threw the wheel round and put the boat on its side. So we had the, the rig in the water and the boat was buried up to uh, and beyond the mast. Um, and you can imagine down below there was boiling water thrown around. There was carnage down below. And uh, we were flogging on our side. Um, and uh, I raced up the stairs and I didn't know whether Craig was still going to be on board um, or not. Uh, he, of course, he had his tether on, as we always uh, do shorthanded racing, um, and he was uh, washed off the wheel, just hanging on uh, to his tether, pulled himself back up, um, and we we got the boat up again. We put another reef in and uh, carried on, but that was a, that was again another decent wipeout uh, again with Craig. Yeah, hopefully there weren't too many rocks around this time. No, no, well offshore, okay. and uh, we. Uh, we, we realised later when we looked through the GPS and interrogated that we'd hit 28 knots during that leg. We were really flying in that thing. Have you ever been injured or, or had a medical sort of situation um, <laughs> when you've been out and you've had to administer, you know, self-administer or self-treat? Yeah, I have actually. I, I did the um, 19 race, 2019 race uh, on Blink, uh, which was Auckland. Uh, Numea, and uh, we were sitting second um, 
to Rantan, and we were pushing the boat pretty hard. Um, and one of the boys, Chinese, jibed the boat. Um, I was asleep down below, um, and I was on the weather side, of course. I was right down the back of the boat. Um, and uh, the boat was on its side. The keel was the wrong way. We had a crew, two crew over the side of the boat um, attached, but uh, underwater uh, on their harnesses. Um, and I felt the boat go. I woke up as the boat started to go. I dived out of bed, and down below was a shambles, and there was hydraulic oil spilt. And as I was rushing to put my, my um, life jacket on, I fell across the boat. So I went the whole width of the boat, and I stopped on the other side with my shoulder, which um, um, was pretty sore at the time. Um, but uh, we had a few other priorities of getting crew out of the water and getting the boat up again, getting the keel back. Um, and I found out later on that I'd put a crack in my humerus and uh, badly damaged my uh, rotator cuff, which required a significant rotator cuff repair and a repair to my, to my humerus and my clavicle. But at the time, we were halfway to Numea, um, and I lived on paracetamol and non-steroidals. Um, and uh, it was sore, but it was, was okay. We, we did the group armor race after that. And it was a bit sore, but um, but it was, you know, I didn't think I'd done too much damage. And finally, after about, after being home for a month or so, my, my arm, I couldn't draw the curtains in the bedroom. And my wife finally convinced me to go and see somebody about it. So that's probably the, the major injury I've had sailing. Sounds like you're a stubborn patient who wouldn't go and look after himself. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, uh, yeah, you just got to grunt up and carry on. <laughs> well, um, look, been really interesting to, to have a chat. And uh, I think there's some really valuable material in there for a lot of people to certainly to think about um, if they are heading offshore or even just, you know, your weekend warriors is just what you've got on board because you never really can know what's going to happen. So um, look, really thank you for your time. Um, hopefully we'll see you back My over pleasure. here uh, sooner rather than later. Um, but yeah, cheers uh, for joining Broadreach Radio. Thanks very much, Michael. It was my pleasure. Happy. Well, that's it for another episode of Broadreach Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, then check out the back catalogue of interviews and don't forget to give us a like and a follow. You can also send in your suggestions and feedback to michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz. In the meantime, I'll catch you in a fortnight with the next podcast. Take care.